0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: One can think of generalness as specialists in
0: diversity. We can't sort of separate our paid work and our unpaid work. It's all blended in and that we go through different stages in our
2: lives, undertaking different roles. So we're beginning to understand and thankfully value this intersection of life and work skills. And it's sort of like building blocks, isn't it? Some things from the paid work sphere
0: and some things from your community work or your unpaid sphere. And then you sort of build that together.
1: Individuals that are hopping around from one job type to another job type are usually considered lost. Don't look at my
3: CV then. Right? (laughs) Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. And today on This Working Life, the power of being a generalist in a specialist world. Now, I want you to visualise a capital T. The vertical line is the expertise line, your deep experience in your field. Then the horizontal bar, well, that's the generalist line, your other interests, your other experiences that can combine with your expertise to strengthen it. This is called the T-shape, and it's being recognised as a powerful tool for people and teams to innovate at work. The idea of the generalist is to lengthen the horizontal part of the T. That's Florenta Teodoridis. She's an associate professor at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. She's been researching the T-shape in people and in teams.
1: Human beings have limited time, limited capacity, limited energy to keep absorbing knowledge, so it makes sense that in some situations that benefit for a wider breadth so longer arms of the T it makes sense to decouple the horizontal from the vertical of the T's and embed
3: that in different people. Well, you started off your working life as a software developer and then project manager. Now you're an associate professor of management and organisation. How has this experience shaped your success? I think
1: it was really important for me to start in the industry and then moving to academia to study how to better help managers improve the way they serve their organizations and how to better understand how companies can compete into the marketplace. It gave me a hands-on experience, um, which is great, rather than going straight into a PhD from, I don't know, a master's degree. It makes me wonder what else I am missing, to be honest, from not working in more organizations, but I'm one person, right, and I have only so many hours in the day, but it opens that curiosity and it makes you aware of how much we are missing just by observing organisations from a distance.
3: And historically careers were linear, expertise was deep and narrow and CVs often boasted I have 30 years of experience in this teeny tiny specialist field but your research shows that particularly in innovation being a generalist is important. So what's at the heart of this do you think?
1: I, I like how you led me towards this because it's precisely this observation that the world is so complicated and it's becoming increasingly complicated that it's not feasible for one human being to experience everything that is happening around them. And we can get only so much information from books, uh, watching videos, going to school and so on. So there's this level of passive knowledge that comes from experience that we don't get to absorb in, in a really, you know, important way. In addition to that, the world is becoming even more complicated. So if we were to think that at this point in time, it's really hard for us to absorb or understand the different parts of the economy, guess what? In a year, two years from now it's going to be even more complicated. That seems to be the pace in which we are going for many reasons, but one of them is because we keep accumulating knowledge as a human race and we build on that knowledge in order to further advance our society, right? So in order to build on the knowledge, we need to have some awareness of the knowledge that has been already discovered. Pool of knowledge available is increasing, so one human being can have access to only so much. Hence the concept of generalist the generalist who would know a little bit of a lot more than a specialist, right? It's exactly like you said, spending a lot of time in one area seems to become increasingly narrow relative to the entire pool of knowledge, right? So we are specialising in narrower and narrower niches and we know more and more
3: about less and less. Florenta says multiple studies have found that the best ideas often emerge from combining insights from different disciplines. And there's a fascinating example of this. In the 19th century... A famous mathematician was inspired by the silk weaving industry and how it used cards with holes to create patterns in the fabric. This inspired Charles Babbage in his creation of computational machines powered by punch cards, which became the foundation of modern computers.
1: The idea with the punch cards is if you want a pattern in a, on a fabric, right that has some sort of a logic, the pattern And same in computation, right? We need to find the logic, a pattern. So if this and that, then we do something else. If this or that, then we do something else, right? So it's a pattern. It's the idea of observing how to code patterns.
3: Another example of good T-shape is work and parenting. Sally McNamara says these skills are absolutely useful in the workplace.
2: Hi, my name is Sally McNamara. I'm development partner at Forward which is the RMIT Centre for Future Skills and Workforce Transformation. So we're beginning to understand and thankfully value this intersection of life and work skills and actually that a profound transition, such as becoming a parent, is part of that. And actually it doesn't just take away from your job, it makes you a better employee. I think the transition to motherhood and parenthood in general has durable skills such as self-awareness, resilience, adaptability, and empathy. So many more that we critically need in the workplace now more than ever. And we know we need this in our leadership particularly. So for a long time, the research from various governments, from the World Economic Forum, from all kinds of consultancies, has been talking about the critical human skills that we're going to need to be able to keep learning and adapting as technology accelerates. And that's why this is so important, is because the way that we learn those skills is often through these profound life experiences. So that's why we need to recognise them back in the workplace. On a personal level, I have built an incredible capacity for resilience that I never knew was possible. The physical challenges I experienced through pregnancy, through early parenthood, led to mental challenges, led to emotional impact. And I now feel stronger than ever able to bring that back to the workplace.
3: So, Florenta, can you tell me about your research that shows hiring more generalists is increasingly necessary for companies to successfully compete? So, I have a few studies, in academic studies,
1: that to some extent they might get completely boring if we go into a lot of detail. So, I'll try to keep it high level and fun. It's really complicated to come up with a... Recommendation for managers to hire journalists because in reality, people self select into their jobs, right? So at any point in time, we observe individuals who exhibit a preference for learning something diverse and individuals who exhibit a preference for something more specialized. So it's really hard to make a recommendation to say we should now train people in diversity, perhaps because there's a taste for diversity and a taste for specialization, right? So my research is trying to take advantage of what we call natural experiments, right? Uh, We're just really looking for nuggets of unexpected events in nature, in the economy that would let us move away from this self-selection in order to truly understand if there is any benefit in advising managers and policymakers to encourage people to be more diversified. Interestingly enough, even when it comes to the self-selection of people exhibiting a preference for diversification or specialization, it's not really manifesting with its full power because the incentives in the economy are generally such that they encourage specialization. Now, of course, this is not to say that in all situations now we need to encourage diversity in knowledge at the expense of depth, but certainly we shouldn't ignore it.
3: So in these natural experiments, what did you find was the advantage of the generalists? There are several of them. So first and most important that I would say is
1: that generalists are complementary to specialists. So I don't want anyone to listen to this and think that now we should all switch to become generalists. That's not the case. The message is that as knowledge continues to accumulate, so as the society learns more about the life surrounding us, Then the more we put our efforts into improving our lifestyle by building on that knowledge, there's an increased need for at least two types of people. So individuals that are more diversified, so they have wider breadth of knowledge, perhaps at the expense of depth of knowledge. And individuals that are truly specialists, so individuals that have more depth of knowledge and less breadth of knowledge. There's this discussion about a T-shaped individual that organizations have been paying attention a lot to. So uh, what I'm saying is very similar to that, but it's taking it one step further to draw attention to the fact that with more knowledge out there, maybe it's not even feasible to ask people to be T-shaped in all situations, but rather we need to decouple the horizontal and the vertical of the T and embed it in different people, right? So
3: you will have the vertical as being the specialist and the horizontal generalist. And you particularly focus on innovation and creativity, but it occurs to me that this is useful for everything because everything involves thinking with flexibility, particularly in these times.
1: Absolutely, exactly. So my research focuses mostly on academic uh, or scientific research, right? The type that one would do, say, in a pharma company, or among computer scientists developing the new AI technologies that everybody's excited about and things like that. But in reality, uh, I believe in the vast number of jobs or tasks that um, working professionals are performing, there is a certain level of creativity, right? Uh, It's just that whatever we are combining
3: might be different depending on the um, domain in which we are working. Another thing that might not make it onto the CV, but should, is the skill set from volunteering.
0: Volunteering has always been part of our culture, part of our DNA, but in the last 30 years or so, there's begun to be a focus on studying volunteering, on beginning to count it a little bit with sort of ABS studies, etc. Everyone has begun to realise, I think, the extent of volunteering, the amount of work that people do in an unpaid capacity. And I think that shifted how it's viewed. That's Melanie Oppenheimer. I am an emeritus professor at Flinders University and also an honorary professor at the ANU.
3: Melanie is an expert in the history of volunteering in Australia and believes it's another feather in the generalist cap, but one that many people don't think to include in their skill set because it's unpaid. But she says it should be considered just as important as paid work.
0: I do, Lisa. I have a. This is a bit of a um, passion for me. I think that the way that we work now has changed, particularly in the 21st century and coming out of COVID, I think those last couple of years has really brought it home to us, is that we can't Think about work when we when we use the that for those four letters work. <laughs> we've got to kind of preface it with paid work or unpaid work or domestic work. You you can't sort of just label when you say work and the meaning is that it's paid and that that's what it is because mm. the way that people work is so different now. And I actually as a historian I go back to the Harvester Judgment which was the beginning of the last century which our whole kind of work framework is paid work framework is still kind of predicated around which is that you know someone would be paid i.e. a man would be paid enough money to support himself and his family three ch- wife and three children because of course the wife wouldn't work and the three children in you know, sort of minimal way and we haven't really shifted from that premise and our whole industrial relations system is predicated around those Notions that work happens in a workplace. Mm. Um, we go to work, we come home from work. But um, I mean, how many people actually really uh, undertake their paid labour or paid work in that way? So, and there's so many other aspects of work unpaid labour, volunteer work, which happens in the public sphere, domestic work. It's much more complicated than that.
3: Does this come down to the things that we value and the value we attribute? to different types of work.
0: I think it is. I mean, volunteer work. Now, just to, I should clarify what I'm talking about here when I talk about volunteer work in the public sphere. So that is work that is undertaken without remuneration. So without financial gain for one's own free will. So that is really, really important, I think, because otherwise people then you know there could be elements of exploitation and things like that. So I think that that's the kind of framework within which I'm I'm talking about these things. But I think that it's been it, it's coming increasingly clear as we begin to sort of um, have uh, ABS studies of how much volunteer work is is going on. The first national one was in nineteen ninety five. So we don't really have that much data from a longitudinal perspective, but we know that it is significant. And because it's not remunerated, it doesn't actually fit within our gross domestic product or our GDP framework. And because it doesn't really fit there, it's not counted. And therefore, it becomes unseen. It becomes invisible. And if something's invisible, we're in trouble. What are some of the tangible
3: skills that volunteering gives us that can be useful in our paid work, Melanie?
0: There are a number of different kind of specific skills. It's the experience, for example, many people will undertake unpaid internships nowadays. So that, you know, you might identify an area of work that you want to get into. You know, radio or you know, the media or something like that. So, you might want to go and ha- um, work in a volunteer capacity in a community radio station, and through doing that unpaid labor, you develop all these skills that you can then take back into and use in a when you're going for paid employment. Also, you can value add. To your paid employment, for example, just for one example, if you're a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare worker, you might be able to go off and work for Médecins Sans Frontières or something like that, overseas aid organisations, and actually value add, you know, personal growth, add to yourself as a as a person, and also there's this concept, you know, concept of service, you know, giving back. So, it enriches your own personal development, and it's good for your mental health to be able to reach out into your local community. You never Never really know where it can take you. And finally, the skills that you learn working on committees, which was one of the first uh, sort of volunteering things I did with my children, was, you know, you learn how committees run. You learn how to manage meetings. I mean, the skills that one learns um, if you have the role of secretary, you know, taking minutes, <laughs> you know, that, that's, a, that's an invaluable skill that you don't, you know, you have to learn that. And often you don't learn that in the paid workplace, But you can learn that through your volunteering if you put your hand up for a committee. And in that sense, you can learn all sorts of different things you can take into your paid work, but also managing people from many different backgrounds and uh, skill sets and interests. You know, the, the sorts of people that you come across when you volunteer in your local community, you learn a lot of personal life skills about how to manage and work with work with people.
3: The work that's emerging for me hearing you talk is cross-pollination, this idea of one building on the other rather than diminishing, so adding rather than subtracting. We've been exploring a theory of the T-shaped person and how the benefits of unpaid work can actually add to the benefits of our paid work. What are your
0: thoughts on this? I think it's a really interesting idea and I think that it it Kind of speaks to the way we work is changing the way we live our lives is changing and it's sort of interspersed so that sounds to me like a really interesting idea for the how we work in the 21st century that you can't we can't sort of separate our paid work and our unpaid work it, it, it's all blended in and that we go through different stages in our lives undertaking different roles. And it's sort of like building blocks, isn't it? That you kind of can take some things from the paid work sphere and some things from your community work or your unpaid sphere and then you sort of build that together. I think it's a new way of understanding work and I think it's a really interesting idea. And looking at ways
3: where we can get away from the labels that may be restrictive, so thinking of things and giving them value, I guess. So this idea of internships, that actually sounds like something you would put on your CV and be very proud of. Why shouldn't it be the same for the other pro bono
0: volunteering that we do? Absolutely. And I think that increasingly people are doing that. Like you'll see in their CVs, they'll have, you know, you'll have your educational kind of qualifications and then whatever that might be. And then you'll have your different sorts of paid work. But I think increasingly employers are looking to see what else individuals are doing, because you can kind of really gauge and sense. So if uh, someone's sort of, I don't know, the breadth of their personality and and their interests. So it's not only just saying, yeah, I like sport, but it's like, yeah, I coach the under nines and I actually sit on the committee of the local female AFL club or something like that, you know, and I do this sort of work. And these are the skills. And I think part of the thing is to actually recognise that those sorts of activities have value and that others can see that value as well. Certainly the pro bono work that people do, I think it's really, really important to really acknowledge that because it does help to create a well-rounded individual.
3: What I'm hearing then is it would be very useful to draw out, particularly in one CV, uh, any volunteer or unpaid work, because that would add to this idea of being across v- many different skill sets and experiences and paradigms.
1: Yes, absolutely, Yeah. So highlighting in the CVs broad interests, hobbies, volunteering of, uh, opportunities,
3: all those would highlight And even when it comes to specialists, do you think that specialists would benefit from just widening out their deep and narrow expertise, particularly in this day and age? Yes, absolutely. So it still helps for any
1: specialist to speak the language of their neighbours a little bit. It reduces the cost of communication and makes communication easier in any kind of team. So not uh, putting the burden entirely on the generalist.
3: And maybe not poo-pooing or looking down your nose at generalists thinking, oh, well, you haven't had the expertise, but saying, I need you. And actually, you can help me broaden my perspective just that little bit.
1: Absolutely. Learning from one another is really important and leaning onto one another. If it's easier, one can think of generalists as specialists in diversity.
3: What's your advice to people looking to recruit new teams and thinking about the makeup of those teams?
1: There's no one size that fits all uh, when it comes to the composition of generalists and specialists in teams. It depends on uh, the strategic objectives of the organization So perhaps in organizations that are relying more strategically on knowledge creation, on innovation, there's a higher need to bring journalists into the team because those individuals will be critical in observing ideas for innovation that reside in the intersection of fields. Another benefit of journalists is that they're able to observe insights from new pieces of knowledge that they never even touched before. That might sound crazy, but if we think of the knowledge space as a multidimensional space, the closer you are in that multidimensional space to something, the easier it is to see it, you are just in closer proximity to it. The idea is that breadth of knowledge in of itself is important, not only because it covers a number of areas of knowledge, but also because it gets closer in knowledge space to more domains than a specialist individual.
3: One way I look at it is that very often if you're in an industry, in a paradigm, then you hang out with everyone in the industry, you know, and you learn from people in the industry. But once you step outside the paradigm, then it doesn't matter what else you do, but you can actually see the world that actually there are different perspectives that exist outside and that once you've released yourself from that, then that's when the unknown, the other ideas can emerge in that outside space. That's exactly right. That's exactly the
1: insight behind generalized is just making sure that there are some individuals on hand or some mechanism at hand to force organizations to get out of their level of comfort and see the world with new eyes, with a different perspective. And that benefits creativity. That benefits company is in seeking a competitive advantage.
3: Thanks to my guests, to sound engineer Kerry Dell, and to producer Zoe Ferguson, whose T-shape is growing bigger with her new hobbies. This Working Life is made on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wawarajari people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. Until next time, work it, baby. You know, I did hospital radio. That was my volunteering and look where I ended up.
0: Oh, case in point, Lisa. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's I how mean... it all started. Well, there you go. Me. You should put that in.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.